1: Hello and welcome to Basic Folk, a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy Howes, and our guest today, Zach Hickman, who is not like your typical folk musician because he is a sideman pretty much exclusively. I've seen him perform solo a couple of times, but for the most part, he's playing sideman to people like Josh Ritter, Margarelli, those cousins. He's in a bluegrass band called Barnstar. All around, fantastic human being. Also was the music director for Rayla Montaigne for a short while. We're gonna get into what exactly we talk about, but first let's thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Basic Folk is supported by Tina and her Pony. If you like fresh takes on traditional music, you might like Tina and her Pony. Follow them on Spotify or at Tina and Her Pony. Zach Hickman is bound to go down in folk history for his incredible handlebar mustache. But fellow bandmates in his numerous groups know him for his extreme talent and keen ability to bring together musical projects like no one else. Born in Lynchburg, Virginia, to physician parents, he grew up on uh, what you might call a micro farm where his family... Grew produce, flowers, and of course tended to bees. He eventually found his way to Oberlin College, where he met and started performing with Josh Ritter, who he still performs with today. So Zach's physical appearance is quite memorable. He of course has that handlebar mustache. He's si- he's over six feet tall, uh, and it's interesting to think that his image was born out of a circus he st- started while in oberlin college and we definitely get into that this is a really fun interview my uh, favorite part is when zach um gives a rundown of what it's like to play music on television so zach hickman is the person i know in like actual real life who has been on tv the most that's not like a tv news reporter Uh, it's pretty funny to hear his um different experiences um, in that particular world this is a a great great interview thanks for checking it out and uh i don't have a clip to play of zach hickman um, but he does if you are familiar with uh, josh or rose cousins music uh, or marcarelli's music um, that is most likely zach playing the bass okay let's get into our conversation with zach hickman Zach Hickman, thanks for doing this.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Um, is it okay to talk about your whole entire life? It's okay. Okay, you just tell me whether or not you want to talk about something or not. But
0: do you need a safe word or something?
1: <laughs> I think the safe <laughs> word is, and I don't want to talk about that. Got it. It's Got a safe it. phrase, yeah. actually. Got it. So tell me what your childhood was like. You grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia. What was yeah. your, your hometown like?
0: Uh, well. It's Lynchburg, Virginia. it um it's a small, like south central Virginia. that makes it sound like it's tough. Um, it's not the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. It's not a tiny town. It's like sixty five thousand people, but pretty small and pretty isolated. There's not another larger city for seventy miles in any direction. It's a very, very conservative. Super Christian town. It's the town where Jerry Falwell is from, mm. and um, Liberty University, and the Moral Majority started there. So it's a um, the buckle of the Bible Belt.
1: The Moral Majority is that the th- um, the thing in the eighties. Yeah, yeah. With yeah. Reagan getting exactly. behind Reagan, and yeah. then making the Republican Party like the Christian. That's right. it. Right. Okay. Yeah.
0: And um, my parents. They moved there when I was about six months old. Where I, from? They were finishing their medical residencies at Duke. I was born on the Duke campus. Wow. And then they moved up to Lynchburg, and that was where I grew up the whole time.
1: And that was because that was from where they got placed?
0: No. Um, that's after the residency is sort of after the placement. Oh, okay. And it was um, it was on the short list of cities that had availabilities for both of their practices I guess. Hmm. And one day they told me what the other cities were in, in a disparaging tone like Seattle, Washington. They're like too rainy. I was like <laughs> I could have grown up in Seattle, but no, I grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia. Mm. I grew up on a in town but on a like 5 acre vanity farm. My parents It's a
1: vanity farm.
0: Like a farm for hobby. Not oh. for business, so pretty expansive. Tons of apple trees and persimmon trees and cherries and pear and.
1: Who is farming?
0: Well, me and my brothers. It's mostly my dad, my mom and dad's project, um, but it was it was a big project, and um, so we had to work every weekend for pretty significant hours every weekend. Wow. Um, So I was driving a tractor at 10 years old, you know, shoveling snow with the five times a year that it snowed two inches out of everyone's driveway, Mm. you know, giving hay rides to people.
1: Building all sorts of character. Exactly. So much character. (laughs) Do you carry that any uh, any of that knowledge about farming into your life now?
0: Yeah, saying farming is that's really a little strong. It's Gardening. it's gardening but it's like big gardening
1: yeah
0: um i would like to say no because that experience made me hate working with the gardens mm-hmm. but i did just spend four days like clearing brush this week so i guess it, some experience i know how to drive a tractor and drive a dump truck and you know use a manure fork and move brush piles it's in it's in there somewhere.
1: That's great. You know? <laughs> um, what kind of kid were you growing up?
0: Um, I was uh, sort of the t- token awkward middle child. I was a kind of a emotional, big kid. <laughs> um,
1: like sensitive. I was
0: sensitive. Yeah, I think so. Um, <clears throat> I say big. I I I hit puberty much earlier than my the other people in my grades mm. like the fourth grade. Wow so I was I was this height in the sixth grade. Wow, 12, which I think influenced some of my instrument choices
2: mm. you know yeah
0: because I just just a big just a big kid. But I wasn't an especially musical kid um, not by any stretch. Um, my parents started me on Suzuki piano lessons at a super young age. I remember it as before I was three years old. That might not be accurate.
1: Wow! But. So, can you just quickly explain Suzuki?
0: Yeah, um, the Suzuki method of teaching very young very it's 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 designed. It's a J- Japanese person named Suzuki, and it was his method for teaching young children, getting them to learn by ear before they were reading music, uh, which at the time seemed like a pretty radical idea. But it was learning by ear and um, being able to play and then introducing the written music as you go. So many of the musicians I I play with, I realize now, had like some degree of Suzuki training.
1: How can you tell?
0: Well, I don't know if you can really tell necessarily, but or a lot of the improvising musicians that I know, that are comfortable as improvisers. That seems to be a pr- pretty common mm. through line. But I was a piano. I was a piano playing kid, and I was unremarkable at best. Um, I wasn't terrible. I wasn't a prodigy or exceptional. I could play. I could play sace and do my lessons, and but I never got super good.
1: What was the word? Echo
0: sace. Echo sace. It's like one of the early... Um, Bach, like good dances that you' oh. learn to play i could you'd recognize it
1: a i'm little, sure yeah. little kid
0: little kid piano music that you learn. <laughs> with
1: two hands yeah
0: two hands um but I never really got i was never i could never really read grand staff like piano music you know it's treble and bass clef um, at, Going the same along time. at the same time and instead I would watch my teacher's hands mm-hmm. and pretend that I was reading the music, and just, if I made a mistake, I'd learn fix it by ear, and then I'd remember the patterns. But I never really read the music.
1: Oh, that's one way to do it.
0: Yeah, it's total just faking my way out of piano lessons, <laughs> <laughs> basically. Um, it's not that I couldn't read the notes, but some people, I mean, it still amazes me. Like, I just don't know how the human brain reads staff in real time like that. i I feel like that's it's reading up left to right and up and down at the same time. It doesn't make sense to me. It never has. Mm, yeah. But I know what all the notes are. I could, I, I read music great, you know, but um, at some point you either need to actually read music well or you need to maybe step away from the
1: piano. <laughs> <laughs> so were you listening to any music when you were a kid?
0: Um no. I feel like it makes my story a little different than most of my friends. But um, we kept a tape recorder that we'd like put on and play Bach while we were going to sleep as kids. They piano lessons were for synapse development. That was a like for brain. Yeah, it was a cognitive plan that Did it has, work? Well, backfired
1: <laughs> terribly, didn't it? You know?
0: um, it just wasn't a house. We didn't we didn't have a stereo. We don't listen, just like listen your, to music.
1: your parents, like, read it in a book or learned it in one of their classes, and they were like, oh, well, let's...
0: Yeah, like, let's did, try that. That's a good thing to do.
1: How many siblings do you have?
0: Uh, a brother on either side. Older did brother and they
1: brother. also play piano?
0: Uh, my older brother didn't, Frank. did he get he out of that? I think they were figuring it out. Oh. You know? <laughs> um, and then my little brother and I both did. It just wasn't a house people like where you put on records and mm-hmm. dance around in the kitchen.
1: My house either. Yeah. It's funny because my parents had a bunch of records and tapes. They would never put anything on. The only thing I remember is that Boney M. Christmas album. Wow. Uh, being played at Christmas. Yeah. And then like Johnny Cash in the car, like his greatest hits or something.
0: Yeah. All I feel like all we listened to was Car Talk and Prairie Home Companion. Mm. Do your parents
1: listen to music now?
0: Um, more than they did, certainly. Right.
1: Yeah, mine don't really either. Mine listen to the music that I like. Yeah. They listen to me.
0: (laughs) My my mom has a a larger me collection than I do, that's for sure.
1: Although I will say, because I know my mom is listening to this podcast, I will say that my dad uh, is a a stellar accordion player. Right. And it is the dream to get you and him jamming. One day,
0: I, I feel like 2019 is, this the, is year, the year. It's yeah. the year it's going to happen. Yeah, I'm
1: back in Boston. Yeah, it's all coming together. What about your? So your parents were not into music. They're physicians. They seem like very smart, straight laced folk. Um, what were they like as parents?
0: They were they were great parents. We were pretty independent kids, you know. Um,
1: Working the cherry farm.
0: Well, kinda, yeah. Yeah. You know, and then. Um, and when I got a little older, my father raised bees, of course. So we had a like a, <laughs> a full-on apiary at the house, mm. and um, and that was really a pretty fun chapter. Um,
1: Where did this interest in kind of micro farming come from for your parents? Uh, it seemed to be
0: something that my my dad was into all along, like at a, even from like a pretty younger age. They were they both liked the science of it. Um, you know, they know the Latin names for all the trees and all the plants. And um, to this day, my mom, Dr. Janet Hickman, is the world U.S. daffodil champion. Wow. She raises daffodils now that we're all out of the house. And this is her high season. So every weekend she's away adjudicating garden contests. You know, it's really pretty crazy. But, yeah, there were there were bees, and then when we would, they would make honey, and then you'd give all the honey away, and that was pretty fun because on a good year you'd get a remarkable amount of honey, 40 gallons or something. Hmm. Um, wow. And everyone everyone I know still has, like, a little bit in their closet. My dad doesn't have the hives anymore, but there's, like, the little bully bee apiary <laughs> the drawing my little brother did. It was awesome.
1: Oh, wow. Um, okay, going back to music. Yeah. I read that you taught yourself music theory. Yeah. How did that happen, and when did you realize that it was theory?
0: Well, I feel like I didn't really realize I had any apt, any real aptitude for music until the sixth grade. When I was 12 years old, I guess. I started playing in the middle school band, you know, beginner band. And in the fifth grade, some kid had told me, we were joking around, he basically bet me that I wouldn't play the tuba. And I was like, yeah, I will. And then I walk into the first day of middle school, and I'm a six-foot-tall sixth grader. And they need tuba players. Nobody wants to play the tuba. So they handed me handed me a tuba, and um, I was pretty good. Like, I got good pretty quickly. I mean, good is relative, I guess. But enough that um, by the seventh grade, I, they had me playing with the high school marching band. Ooh. And they would... The middle school band director would drive me from the middle school every day to the high school to play tuba in the marching band. They didn't have enough tuba players. I looked like a high school kid. Um, (laughs) So I started doing that in seventh grade. I might be the only person that played in a high school marching band for six years. (laughs) Wow. Um,
1: What does that get you in life?
0: Well, here I am, you know,
1: <laughs> living the dream. Oh my god, that's so true.
0: But it was around that time, you know, people start like kids start getting guitars and um this kid in my class told me that he was starting a band and I was getting, I was the bass player. And I said, "Sounds really cool." And I went to the went to the school library to look up what the bass is cuz I had no idea. <laughs> you know, I didn't I don't know what that is. Um so I was asking my mom about a bass and she stalled for many, many months. So I had a little tiny Casio keyboard and our band practice was him with with a guitar and me playing notes on the keyboard and just, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, it was, it was the worst band the world's <laughs> ever heard. But I, I spent a lot of time that summer with this terrible little keyboard, just playing around on it. And music theory is such a scary sort of word. It's a word that people use to divide themselves from other kinds of musicians. Like, I never learned theory, so it's wrong. It's, it's kind of a s- simplistic, s- silly way to think about it. it music theory is just the, it's just the relationships between notes and how those can be used in different ways. So if you spend enough time playing around on a piano and you're in the key of C and you play a C chord and an F chord and a G chord and a C chord, that has a very familiar sound. And if you play, you start on a different chord. You start on an E chord, but you count the same number of notes. You count to four, you count to five. It'll have the same relationship, but it'll be in a whole different key. And I feel like I could start to see through music mm. a little bit.
1: Cracking the code? Yeah, I was cracking yeah. the code.
0: Um, I pretend that it's not the case, but, um, you know... I'm, come from, like, a family of scientists. My older brother is a computer scientist. And, like, uh, I think I had um, an aptitude for the math mm. of, of the music. But I didn't know what any of, the word, any of the names were. Like, where if, you know, if you play from C to C on a piano, and then you play from D to D on a piano, but still only the white notes, it has a totally different sound. And then you, if you play from E to E using only the white notes, it has a totally different sound. And you're like, those are cool. Um, Those are called modes. Those are like the scary modes that everyone is afraid of. You know, that's the Dorian mode and the Phrygian mode and the Lydian. And um, I was learning to hear those patterns in sound before I knew what the
1: names of them were. And then did you learn about those eventually at Oberlin?
0: Oh, I learned about them much earlier. I and my mom, we managed to bully the high school to start an AP music theory program <laughs> for me in the ninth grade.
1: You're like, I've been playing tuba for you guys <laughs> for six years. Totally. Um,
0: the band teacher at the high school, he didn't want to have suddenly have to teach an extra AP class. So it was just me and one senior trumpet player who was basically just reading about music theory in the first period every day. But I already knew, I felt like I knew a lot of it. I just figured it out. And so now I just mm-hmm. had to learn the names. And it was it was easy. You know, I got a five on the AP Music Theory. And it's like understanding the grammar of music. You just mm-hmm. need... Each, each instrument is a different language, but you understand the structure. You understand how it was put together. Mm-hmm. And once you fill in the details, it's a lot easier.
1: Is that kind of how your mind works in general when approaching a problem?
0: I guess so, yeah. It's like pretty interesting. Or... Problems seem less problematic when you, like, divide them into variables that you understand and have control over and variables that you don't. Well, then you don't have to worry about the whole problem. You worry about the things that you don't have as much control over, and that's a lot less. That's not that scary. Mm. I think I think that's it's in there. Mm. In most facets of my life, I seem like I have a tendency towards structure and kind of organizing things. Mm-hmm which i'm I'm in the wrong business for that, you know <laughs>
1: That's, well, yeah uh, well you've you've uh, come to use those skills pretty well, I <laughs> think. Um, well, before uh, before we get go any further, what did the high school do after you graduated for a tuba player? Um, do you still go back and play well, tuba?
0: I haven't gone back. Both of the band directors that were influential left when I left..
1: Um, They're like- we're done. Of course, we're done. <laughs>
0: um, but in those six years, they went from like a two tubas to like a 320-person marching band with like an eight-person tuba section. Wow. And I got us all matching hats and dance moves. Um, we were about as cool as a high school marching band tuba section can be. Oh my gosh. Just to say, not very.
1: I can really can't wait to get you and my dad together. <laughs> uh,
0: but my last year in the marching band, I was the drum major, which is the person that stands in front of the conductor, the person that stands in front of the marching band and conducts. So I was the I was the leader of the marching band my senior year of high school, which means oh. I didn't play the tuba. But our show that year was the music from the movie Braveheart, and they needed someone to learn how to play the bagpipes in a couple of weeks.
1: Who stepped up? I stepped up. Wow.
0: So I would conduct the band and then run off my podium and run over to the percussion section and put on my bagpipes and then honk the bagpipes for a while and then put that down <laughs> and then run back up on the podium and finish the show. It's really, really funny.
1: Wow. I'm just like, there's so many things about you that are making so much sense <laughs> as we speak. Uh, mm. You Yeah, you, you are in a, a group of musicians in Boston who often will, in the middle of a song, will just get up, move to another instrument, start playing it, play it for a little while, get up, go to another instrument. Totally. It started early. I think so. You uh, studied performance, jazz performance and composition there. Where did the interest in jazz come from?
0: Jazz was just, it was a good, I mean, I didn't grow up listening to jazz, but it combined the upright bass and being challenged musically. And it's just kind of where I ended up there. So I went, I auditioned for a bunch of schools. I auditioned for Oberlin, got a scholarship, uh, and I went there as a, um, a double bachelor degree program jazz, jazz performance.
1: In composition.
0: Um, the, and in an English degree, actually. Oh, all yeah. right. The composition is just, you know, it's part, part, part of the Part of the performance. yeah.
1: Mm. Is there a way to, like, sum up your experience at Oberlin? Like, how, how did you fit in there?
0: It was a great time. I did a bunch of stuff at Oberlin that I probably wouldn't have had a chance to do anywhere else. It was I was at Oberlin that I did my my circus
2: mm.
0: for my like senior project. It wasn't a senior project. There is no senior project requirement. I just decided I didn't want to do a normal senior jazz recital. So I put on a 65-person circus. With like a twelve-piece band and all full original score and an animal act and trapeze and it took seven months. Wow! I built all the wagons, circus wagons myself. Like put on a big, big show. Um, and now it's like a part of the curriculum at Overland College, which is really cool.
1: Wow! Um, and to uh, to make a circus.
0: Yeah. Now there's like a circus major at Overland. Wow! Yeah. There's the O Circus program, and. I don't have any circus talents, you know. But uh, it's where I grew my first big curly mustache for the circus.
1: Oh, really? Yeah.
0: And I would just walk around and I'd go to parties late at night when people were already very drunk and I wasn't yet. And um, ask people if they could do any tricks and collected a bunch of names and put together a crazy circus of weirdos. And it was great fun. So, yeah, and Oberlin... Oberlin I also got to meet musicians and start to make records and um, the first record I made as a college student was with Josh Ritter, my freshman year when I was eighteen years old, which is pretty crazy.
1: yeah, how did you guys meet?
0: we were um we were kind of placed together um, there was a play was being put on and they wanted to record an original score for the play and they needed people and it was sort of like a country country themed Mm -hmm. soundtrack and i was the only bass player from the south so they kind of just assumed that i could play country music and they asked me if i'd do it and they said oberlin
1: is in ohio yeah it's it's like
0: next to cleveland
1: yeah
0: so they asked me if i would play and i said sure and they said great we'll let you know when and then one night i'm like ready to go to sleep at like 10 o'clock and i get a phone call in the dorm and they're like where are you we're recording the record all night tonight. Um, <laughs> Josh, Josh's job was to call me and let me know, and he did not. So I was very late, and I went to a recording session at about 11 p.m. till 4 or 5 in the morning, and we recorded a soundtrack, which is hilarious. Uh, I still have it. It's, it has its moments. <laughs> <laughs> so we were th- kind of put together with that, and then Josh is a couple years older than I am. And his senior year was my sophomore year. And he wanted to record his first debut record. So they asked me to play on it. And again, the only time that the recording studio was available was from like midnight to 10 AM on a Sunday. So we made most of that record in one long night, very strange night. Um, and then he graduated, and then I had a couple more years.
1: And uh, when did you come back to playing with him? Did you continue to play with him after he graduated? Yeah.
0: Um, Josh would come back to Oberlin. He was, you know, he was very popular. He was a very popular performer on, like, student campus and the student coffee house and the folk music club. And so I would play with him. In those days, it it was, you know, it's... It was simpler times. You know, it was very cute. Play upright bass with a harmonica rack, play harmonica solos, you know, play <laughs> the bass at the same time.
1: Was it the two of you?
0: I, and um, Darius, his manager, was oh, playing drums. drums.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And at least maybe on two, like, spring or fall breaks, I would I drove out east where he was living, where Josh was living, and we would play shows, like, around my, like, college availability mm. it was the first time I came to Boston and the first time I played at Club Passing
1: and you moved here eventually because Josh was here
0: um, it was one of the factors yeah it wasn't it wasn't all of it but it was it was one of the factors that kind of helped me narrow down the void
1: how long have you been playing with Josh at this point
0: point? Uh, 22 years
1: Oof. wow
0: isn't that crazy
1: yeah it's really crazy <laughs> yeah So um, you and Sam Kassir, Sam Kassir plays keyboard and whatnot.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, The two of you, the last time all three of us were together, I really noticed how funny the two of you are. And, I mean, that's something that I've known, but it really, like, struck me of, like, what great chemistry you have in terms of, like, comedic timing. It was just hilarious listening to you talk. And I wonder if there's ever an opportunity for you guys to show that side of your personality on stage while not upstaging Josh.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Um...
1: Because Josh definitely has like, I don't know in terms of like a songwriter who's also very funny. I think it's a very um, nuanced and hard skill to develop putting your um, sense of humor into your songwriting. But what is it like? when you're backing somebody up on stage yeah. and you're funny.
0: Um, it's a, it's a great question. I do think Sam and I are, uh, we have a good, we have good chemistry. It's
1: amazing. You know? And
0: we've known each other almost as long as Josh and I, like I got Sam into the Josh Ritter band. When he, was he was like
1: the young man.
0: He was the young man. He was still in college. You know, we he barely graduated college cause we kept bringing him on the road. Um, <laughs> um So it's, yeah, geez, that's 18 years. You know, it's been a long time. Um, But I think Sam and I both agree that it's Josh's show, right? Or it's the band leader's show. It's very, very rare that I'm going to talk on the microphone during a Josh show unless I am, like, asked a question on stage, which has happened, but very rarely, you know. Seeing shows... Where, like, the band members are, like, making funny comments on the mic. Is it ever really that funny? Or is it mostly (laughs) just funny for the people in the band, you know? Yeah. I just don't know. I don't know that that's really our job. But I do think that we can have real distinct personalities without, like, telling jokes, Mm. you know? Uh, It's going to be real subtle. Well, I guess it's subtle. It doesn't feel that subtle. (laughs) And, like, you know, musically, there's a a lot of entertain yourself, entertain the room, also entertain the other guys on stage. And some of that is, like, musically playful
1: Mm -hmm. or
0: playful. Yeah, a little little tongue-in-cheek sometimes. It hasn't happened in a while, but um, Sam and I do have a duo band called Sack and Zam, (laughs) which is um, accordion and tuba songs that we perform together <laughs> The two most with beautiful matching, matching shirts.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, we haven't done a sack and zam in a while, but it's a pretty yeah. pretty good show. I think
1: we're due. <laughs> you have been on TV numerous times. You might be the person I know in life that has been on television the most that is not like a TV news reporter. <laughs> Can you talk about what that experience is like to be on TV? Like, is there a set routine every time?
0: Yeah. Um, no, is the answer to that. Um, all, all of the shows that I've done are, they're different. You know, they, they have their, their quirks. Um, the one, the show that I've done the most is David Letterman. And, um, I guess I've done Letterman six times. Wow! Five times, six times.
1: Is it all with Josh?
0: Uh, no, um, with Ray Ray oh. La, Ray Lamontagne also. Um, that show is is um, is very, it's very funny because you have to load in very early in the morning, incredibly early, like five fifteen or something. Oh, wow! Um, or the first time that we played Letterman was before we had like guitar tech and help mm. people to help mm-hmm. us, so you know we're there early. And then uh, you sound check and then all your stuff is on rolly carts, and then they roll it all off. And then you have to go upstairs in a tiny room about the size of this <laughs> and wait all day, you know? <laughs> then you go in, you do hair and makeup one at a time. And it's the same, you know, they... They laugh, at they think my mustache is cool. They look at my hair and they say, I guess we're good here because we've got a <laughs> lot to do, you know? <laughs> and
1: your mustache is already waxed I, up. My
0: mustache is already waxed. And then I get lots of um, foundation for my shiny five head, right? Lots and lots <laughs> of sh- shiny de-shiner. Um, but then when it's ready to go, they film Letterman just like The Running Order on TV. So the changeover from haven't touched your instrument in eight hours to get on stage and play is 90 seconds and it's absolutely crazy. So they go to commercial and then whatever staging is in the way, gets pulled away and all of our instruments get rolled back out on carts and stopped and you have to plug in and make sure that everything's cool and inevitably something isn't cool Mm. and you got to figure out why. And then, then they're like they give you the 54321 they go to letterman and then they cut back to you you're supposed to like look cool and <laughs> comfortable like it's not it's not comfortable you know uh it's also freezing cold I heard that yeah, yeah so cold
1: like like 50 degrees like no
0: it's it's, I think it's like 57 degrees in there wow. it's it's chilly you know oh, yeah um and then 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 you go 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 and you play your 4 minute song no you don't you play your 3 minute song <laughs> Um, and then you're done. and it Just happened, one time? You just play one it? time. Unless you make a colossal mistake, which has only happened one time to me. And then you can re- do a redo. Um, I don't want to talk about
1: that. Okay. <laughs> um. <laughs> That's totally fine.
0: Um, but yeah, it's, it's a crazy, crazy experience. And some of the shows are different. I think definitely the most fun TV thing I've ever done was the, um jules holland show on the bbc in london mm. you know, later later with jules holland that
1: seems pretty fun
0: super fun because there's no it's only bands mm-hmm. that are there's no like other acts there's no like actors or politicians it's just different bands in mm-hmm. a circle and the time that we played it, it uh, Bela fleck was there and the who sure so we, were wow. on, we were on jules holland with the who wow
1: and uh you open for the who
0: I played with the Who. Wow. Because when they do like the opening thing where they play like a the like theme song, Pino Paladino was in the bathroom, so I played bass with the Who. Oh. It happened in real life. <laughs> um
2: That's cool. And that,
0: yeah, that was that was super fun. We had a big horn section and um you know, if you I look at the taping, they like they cut to like over Pete Townsend's shoulder, and he's like holding his guitar and watching us play and nodding his head. And it that was really fun. <laughs> that's that was,
1: a moment yeah, for sure. That was a great one. You have this story of first arriving in Boston and going to the Cantab Cantab Lounge, um, sitting in on bluegrass night, which is a thing that's been happening for hundreds of years <laughs> at this point. Um, but what I loved about the story is that immediately afterwards, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, people came up to you and just were handing you business cards to come play with them. Um, why do you think people are so drawn to you to be um, a, a, their sideman?
0: I think in a, in a best-case scenario, um, what I bring to the table is um, – competency like i'm I'm a quick study and I'm good at my instrument um but i'm I make the people I'm performing with feel more comfortable um, that's gotten me more work than probably anything else if uh if a uh, if an artist is nervous or uncomfortable, I can usually make it better mm. you know
1: does that translate to life not
0: as well as it? As I wish it did. Yeah. Maybe, maybe sometimes.
1: It'd <laughs> be a real good skill to have yeah. it on both ways. <laughs>
0: um, with Ray LaMontagne, that was a part of it. Like, uh, he can be an sort of an anxious performer. Mm-hmm. Um, when I play with Ray, I don't, I wouldn't look at the audience. I would just look at Ray for two hours, and anytime he'd open his eyes, I'm looking at him, and I'm, I'm like, I, I got gotcha. you, like.
1: Did you like that?
0: Yeah, very much. Well, it's just. Someone's looking out for you mm. on stage. The stage is scary. You know, it's vulnerable and strange and it's hot and loud. And um, there's somebody you turn to your left and there's somebody that's got your back at all times. I I like to think that that's a good feeling.
2: Mm. You know?
0: um, In a lot of ways, I feel like my a lot of my job is it's, you know it's easier than I don't have to sing. I don't have to remember all these verses like, um, so I have extra bandwidth, you know? And so I can, I can give you as an artist a ton of attention Mm. and make you feel like you are being taken care of. You're being looked after. Um, So present. That's why I, I really try to be. Yeah. Um, I think that's helped, you know, um, when I first moved to town, I think there weren't a ton of, there were very few young bluegrass musicians in town. It wasn't like it is these days. Mm-hmm. There were fewer of us. And um, I had been, also while I was in college, I started to play music with Chris Eldridge from the Punch Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was, you know, he's a number of years younger, but we had a band for a year and played a lot of bluegrass. Is
1: so that Stable Horse?
0: Yeah, a was Stable Horse eventually. Um, so it, I, I was really into bluegrass when I moved to town. It was a nice time, early 2000s for bluegrass. And um, a banjo player named Chris Pandolfi moved to town on the same day, who's now in the infamous String Dusters. Mm-hmm. And we sat in at the same time at the Cantab tab. And we're like, you're you're great. You're great. And then a bunch of people were like, we need great people. So we both started working right away. I never had to get a job. I just moved to Boston and started working.
1: That's awesome. So, would you say Stable Horse was a precursor to the infamous Stringdusters?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, Stable Horse was the first time I had a, I had a vision for a band, and I was decided I was gonna at my own personal expense like make a band. So I knew Andy Hall on dobro, I knew Chris Pandolfi on banjo, and I knew Chris Eldridge. On guitar. And none of those guys had met each other. So I bought Chris Eldridge a ticket to fly from Cleveland, which when you're 22 years old is a, a real commitment. Mm-hmm. So Critter flew in on a Friday. We hung out at my house. We learned some songs. Saturday morning, we learned some songs. Saturday afternoon, we played the Plow and Stars. <laughs> Sunday morning, we drove to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and we made a record. And then we flew Critter home that night. And um,
1: it's a crazy weekend. It's a crazy in weekend. New England. I don't.
0: I can't imagine pulling something like that off. <laughs> also, like, because you got to stay up real late, and you got to get real drunk, and you got to eat Kelly's roast beef at two in the morning. Of course. Well, it the... sounds
1: like those Josh that uh, Josh Ritter recording experience. Yeah, in a way.
0: Totally. There's a there's a, there's a through there's line a there. Parallels. Um, but yeah, so I made Stable Horse. Um, we performed some. We toured a little bit. And then it was, um, they decided to move as a group to Nashville. And I kind of had to decide if I was going to move to Nashville and stick with Stable Horse if I was going to keep playing with Josh Ritter. So I sort of, I kept playing with Josh. Hmm. And they um, changed the name of the band and became the String Dusters in Nashville. Wow. Yeah.
1: It's wild.
0: Yeah. It, um, it's one of my one of my one of my specialties is naming bands, starting bands, and then basically getting kicked out of my own band. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Got a few of those.
1: Um, I do wanna know about your instrument spreadsheet. Oh yeah. Tell me about it. How many, ins- you don't know how many instruments you own?
0: Well, I don't have the spreadsheet in front of me.
1: Oh, okay. But it's like a, as many that you just don't have it in your mind.
0: Well, I, um, I like to collect instruments. I like, I love being able to play lots of different instruments and some of them I'm pretty good at. And some of them I'm just really not that good at, but I'm better than you are. Cause I own it. You don't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think that's awesome. Um, Especially in the 2000s, I had a little bit of an eBay problem and mm, would we all wind did. up with a lot of oh, things. Yeah. Um, but I started keeping an Excel document for taxes. And then because I would loan, I loan people a lot of stuff. I like, I like having extras and redundancy. And then a lot of jumpsuits. A lot of jumpsuits, a lot of pump organs, a lot <laughs> of bass amps, you know. Um, I like... Having all these, and then, so I need to write down sometimes who has what, because I would forget. Um, and then you might as well list them in alphabetical order. Sure. And then alphabetical order on a spreadsheet, you've got a number, and then you start to realize, like, wow. It's like you're scrolling from page to page of your own instrument list. <laughs> like, There's a lot going on here. Um Somewhere between 70 and 80, I think, like, different instruments... Wow, that's if you count like harmonicas as one instrument, and yeah. not like fifteen different harmonicas, mm. you know. Um, but there, I also own instruments I haven't seen in years and years, you know. I own a valve trombone. I think it's in Dietrich Strauss's closet, but I don't know. Let's go get it. I, I definitely haven't seen it since like 2012. You know, I don't know if it's still there.
1: Um, can you tell me about my favorite instrument of yours? Can you guess which one it is?
0: I'm going to guess it's Nessie, the Loch Ness Monster sousaphone. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I play the tuba. Tubas are very expensive. Like, when you leave high school, you no longer have a tuba. Because the tuba, the, the high school owned it.
1: Oh, it's that expensive. Yeah.
0: No, they're, you know, they start at like $4,000. Mm. Too much. You know, they're, they're pricey. Um, so I was... I was on tour, I was in Scotland, coincidentally. I was, in the Sh- I was on the Shetland Islands, and it was my birthday. It's a crazy place to have a birthday. And I think I was turning, no, I wasn't 30. It's was younger than 30. No, I think I might have been turning 30 years old. Um, I'm at the end of the world in the middle of the North Atlantic. I'm lonely. I'm on tour. And I I've got the, the, old, the laptop out. And I, I think I'm looking for sousaphones and tubas on eBay. And I think I typed in weird sousaphone or something like that. This instrument comes up that a crazy person made in Ohio, <laughs> like a total crazy person, whose two passions are marching band and fiberglass jet boat repair. And he took a collegiate Holton sousaphone, which is a fiberglass shell,
1: the white one the white ones yeah. yeah those
0: weird white ones they don't sound super good um, but they're light mm. and he turned it into the loch ness monster and put fins like fabricated delicate steel reinforced fins Beautiful. and and uh, scales all all the whole thing's covered in like painted scales fire in the bell um, and it's late at night we've been we've been drinking 50 year old Scotch. <laughs> and I was like, it's my birthday. I deserve this. So I was determined to win the bid. Um, nobody bid on it. I won That's it by a, by a long shot. Wow. And I felt really, I, feel, I felt sort of bad because I won it for way less money than the tuba by itself would have cost. Mm. Um, but then I contact them, you know, I need to get it shipped from Ohio and it's huge, you know, mm-hmm. and it doesn't fit into a case anymore because it's got giant fins on it. Right. So this crazy person has to make me a case and then put it on a Greyhound bus and I have to go to the bus like depot. buy a
1: ticket for this. Pick it up.
0: Yeah. I get there and I'm looking around and people, I don't know what, I don't know where to start. And this one guy comes over to me and he goes, are you the Loch Ness Monster guy? <laughs> What does that mean? He had painted Danger Loch Ness Monster on the case, which is a crazy thing with no context. You're like, what do you mean? It's a, there's like a 60-pound, like f- six-square-foot case that says Danger Loch Ness Monster? It's hilarious. Uh, I brought it home. And Rachel Davis was in town that day. She happened to come by the same day I got my tuba for the first time, and we we put a couple of videos that are still up on online. They're terrible. Like I can't <laughs> stop laughing. I'm trying to play the the sousaphone. Uh, it's Nessie. It's amazing.
1: It's so good. It's
0: the best instrument I've ever seen.
1: I think some of my earliest YouTube videos are of <laughs> Barnstar like playing Nessie in the cantab <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> made on a flip phone. I think you're right. It's so good. Oh man, this has been so great. Thank you so much. Absolutely, so much fun. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. All right, thanks, Zach. All right, Uh, I forgot to do the lightning round with Zach, which is too bad because he would have been fantastic at it. So uh, let's just thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Basic Folk is brought to you in part by Winterbirds. Their new album, Shaker Songs, takes 18th and 19th century sacred texts from American shakers and puts it to all new progressive bluegrass compositions, exploring the poetry of this unique community. You can find Shaker Songs by Winterbirds on Bandcamp. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk, 2 p.m. Eastern, Every Saturday, you can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, WIUPFM.org. Basic Focus produced by Laura McCarthy. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. I'm Cindy House, and you can find show notes at CindyHowes.net. That's also where you can sign up for my newsletter, which uh, I sometimes send out and let you know what's going on. There's also a Facebook group you can join, Basic Folk Basics. Uh, Stop by, say hi, and hope everyone is just having a really wonderful day. Okay, thanks so much for listening. Bye!